Chapter 28, Part 2 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2, Paris in Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Matchen. Episode 10, Chapter 28, Part 2. I wish to regain my liberty at all hazards. My pike is an admirable instrument, but I can make no use of it as my cell is sounded all over except the ceiling every day. If I would escape, it is by the ceiling, therefore, that way I must go. But to do that, I must make a hole through it, and that I cannot do from my side, for it would not be the work of a day. I must have someone to help me, and, not having much choice, I had to pick out the monk. He was thirty-eight, and though not rich in common sense, I judged that the love of liberty, the first need of men, would give him sufficient courage to carry out any orders I might give. I must begin by telling him my plan in its entirety, and then I shall have to find a way to give him the bar. I had then two difficult problems before me. My first step was to ask him if he wished to be free and if he were disposed to hazard all in attempting his escape in my company. He replied that his mate and he would do anything to break their chains. But, added he, it is of no use to break one's head against a stone wall. He filled four pages with the impossibilities which presented themselves to his feeble intellect, for the fellow saw no chance of success on any quarter. I replied that I did not trouble myself with general difficulties, and that in forming my plan I had only thought of special difficulties, which I would find means to overcome, and I finished by giving him my word of honor to set him free, if he would promise to carry out exactly whatever orders I might give. He gave his promise to do so. I told him that I had a pike twenty inches long, and with this tool he must pierce the ceiling of his cell next the wall which separated us and he would then be above my head. His next step would be to make a hole in the ceiling of my cell and aid me to escape by it. Here your task will end and mine will begin, and I will undertake to set both you and Count Asquin at liberty. He answered that when I had got out of my cell I should still be in prison, and our position would be the same as now, as we should only be in the garrets which were secured by three strong doors. I know that, Reverend Father, I replied, but we are not going to escape by the doors. My plan is complete, and I will guarantee its success. All I ask of you is to carry out my directions and to make no difficulties. Do you busy yourself to find some way of getting my bar without the knowledge of the gowler? In the meanwhile, make him get about you forty pictures of saints, large enough to cover all the walls of your cell. Lawrence will suspect nothing and they will do to conceal the opening you are to make in the ceiling. To do this will be the work of some days, and of mornings Lawrence will not see what you have done the day before, as you will have covered it up with one of the pictures. If you ask me why I do not undertake the work myself, I can only say that the gowler suspects me, and the objection will doubtless seem to you a weighty one. Although I had told him to think of a plan to get a hold of the pike, I had thought of nothing else myself, and had a happy thought which I hastened to put into execution. 
I told Lawrence to buy me a folio Bible, which had been published recently. It was the Vulgate, with the Septuagint. I hoped to be able to put the pike in the back of the binding of the book. I found the tool to be two inches longer. My correspondent had written to tell me that his cell was covered with pictures, and I communicated him my idea about the Bible and the difficulty presented by its want of length. Happy at being able to display his genius, he railed me on the poverty of my imagination, telling me that I had only to send him the pike wrapped up in my foxskin cloak. Lawrence, said he, had often talked about your cloak, and Count Asquin would arouse no suspicion by asking to see it in order to buy one of the same kind. All you have to do is send it folded up. Lawrence would never dream of unfolding it. I, on the other hand, was sure that he would. In the first place, because a cloak folded up is more troublesome to carry than when it is unfolded. However, not to rebuff him, and at the same time to show him that I was the wiser, I wrote that he had only to send for the cloak. The next day Lawrence asked me for it, and I gave it folded up, but without the bar, and in a quarter of an hour he brought it back to me, saying that the gentleman had admired it very much. The monk wrote me a doleful letter, in which he confessed that he had given me a piece of bad advice, adding that I was wrong to follow it. According to him, the pike was lost, as Lawrence had brought in the cloak all unfolded. After this, all hope was gone. I undeceived him, and begged him for the future to be a little bit more sparing of his advice. It was necessary to bring the matters to a head, and I determined to send him the bar under the cover of my Bible taking measures to prevent the gowler from seeing the ends of the great volume. My scheme was as follows. I told Lawrence that I wanted to celebrate St. Michael's Day with a macaroni cheese, but wishing to show my gratitude to the person who had kindly lent me his books, I would like to make him a large dish of it and prepare it with my own hands. Lawrence told me, as had been arranged between the monk and myself, that the gentleman in question wished to read the large book which cost three sequins. Very good, said I. I will send it him with the macaroni, but get me the largest dish you have, as I wish to do the thing on a grand scale. He promised to do what I asked him. I wrapped up the pike in paper and put it in the back of the Bible, taking care that it projected an equal distance on each end. Now, if I placed on the Bible, a great dish of macaroni, full of melted butter, I was quite sure that Lawrence would not examine the ends. All his gaze would be concentrated upon the plate, to avoid spilling the grease on the book. I told Father Balby of my plan, charging him to take care how he took the dish, and above all, to take the dish and Bible together, not one by one. On the day appointed, Lawrence came earlier than usual carrying a saucepan full of boiling macaroni and all the necessary ingredients for seasoning the dish. I melted a quantity of butter, and after putting the macaroni into the dish, I poured the butter over it till it was full to the brim. The dish was a huge one, and was much larger than the book on which I placed it. I did all this at the door of my cell, Lawrence being outside. When all was ready, I carefully took up the Bible and dish, placing the back of the book next to the bearer, and told Lawrence to stretch out his arms and take it, to be careful not to spill the grease over the book, and to carry the whole to its destination immediately. 
As I gave him this weighty load, I kept my eyes fixed on his, and I saw to my joy that he did not take his gaze off the butter, which he was afraid of spilling. He said it would be better to take the dish first, and then to come back for the book. But I told him that that would spoil the present, and that both must go together. He then complained that I had put too much butter, and said jokingly that if it were spilt, he would not be responsible for the loss. As soon as I saw the Bible in the lout's arms, I was certain of success, as he could not see the ends of the pike without twisting his head, and I saw no reason why he should divert his gaze from the plate, which he had enough to do to carry evenly. I followed him with my eyes till he disappeared into the antechamber of the monk's cell, and he, blowing his nose three times, gave me the prearranged signal that all was right, which was confirmed by the appearance of Lawrence in a few moments afterwards. Father Balby lost no time in setting about the work, and in eight days he succeeded in making a large enough opening in the ceiling, which he covered with a picture pasted to the ceiling with breadcrumbs. On the 8th of October, he wrote to say that he had passed the whole night in working at the partition wall, and had only succeeded in loosening one brick. He told me the difficulty of separating the bricks joined to one another by strong cement was enormous but he promised to persevere, though, he said, we shall only make our position worse than it is now. I told him that I was certain of success, that he must believe in me and persevere. Alas, I was certain of nothing, but I had to speak thus, or to give up all. I was fain to escape from this hell on earth, where I was imprisoned by a most detestable tyranny, and I thought only of forwarding this end with the resolve to succeed or at all events not to stop, before I came to a difficulty which was unsurmountable. I had read in the great book of experience that, in important schemes, action is the grand requisite, and the rest might be left to fortune. If I had entrusted Father Balby with these deep mysteries of moral philosophy, he would have pronounced me a madman. His work was only toilsome on the first night, for the more he worked, the easier it became, and when he had finished, he found he had taken out 36 bricks. On the 16th of October, as I was engaged in translating an ode of Horace, I heard a trampling noise above my head, and then three light blows were struck. This was the signal agreed upon to assure us that our calculations were correct. He worked till the evening, and the next day he wrote that if the roof of my ceiling was only two boards thick, his work would be finished that day. He assured me that he was carefully making the hole round as I had charged him, and that he would not pierce the ceiling. This was a vital point, as the slightest mark would have led to discovery. The final touch, he said, will only take a quarter of an hour. I had fixed on the day after the next to escape from my cell at night-time, to enter no more, for with a mate I was quite sure that I could make in two or three hours a hole in the roof of the ducal palace and once on the outside of the roof, I would trust the chance for the means of getting to the ground. I had not yet got so far as this, for my bad luck had more than one obstacle in store for me. On the same day, it was a Monday, at two o'clock in the afternoon, whilst Father Balby was at work, I heard the door of the hall being opened. My blood ran cold, but I had sufficient presence of mind to knock twice the signal of alarm, at which it had been agreed that Father Balby was to make haste back to his cell and set all in order. In less than a minute afterwards, Lawrence opened the door, 
and begged my pardon for giving me a very unpleasant companion. This was a man between forty and fifty, short, thin, ugly, and badly dressed, wearing a black wig. While I was looking at him, he was unbound by two guards. I had no reason to doubt that he was a knave, since Lawrence told me so before his face without displaying the slightest emotion. The court, I said, can do what seems good to it. After Lawrence had brought him a bed and told him that the court allowed him ten sous a day and then locked us up together. Overwhelmed by this disaster, I glanced at the fellow, whom his every feature proclaimed rogue. I was about to speak to him when he began by thanking me for having got him a bed. Wishing to gain him over, I invited him to take his meals with me. He kissed my hand and asked me if he would still be able to claim the ten sous with the court allowed him. On my answering in the affirmative, he fell on his knees, and, drawing an enormous rosary from his pocket, he cast his gaze all around the cell. What do you want? You will pardon me, sir, but I am looking for some statue of the Holy Virgin, for I am a Christian. If there were even a small crucifix, it would be something, for I have not been in so much need of the protection of St. Francis de Assisi, whose name I bear, though all unworthy. I could scarcely help laughing, not at his Christian piety, since faith and conscience are beyond control, but at the curious turn he gave his remonstrance. I concluded he took me for a Jew, and to disabuse him of this notion, I made haste to give him the hours of the Holy Virgin, whose picture he kissed, and then gave me the book back, telling me in a modest voice that his father, a galley officer, had neglected to have him taught to read. I am, said he, a devotee of the Holy Rosary, and he told me a host of miracles, to which I listened with the patience of an angel. When he had come to an end, I asked him if he had had his dinner, and he replied that he was dying of hunger. I gave him everything I had, which he devoured rather than ate, drinking all my wine, and then becoming maudlin as he began to weep, and finally to talk without rhyme or reason. I asked him how he got into trouble and he gave me the following story. My aim, and my only aim, has always been the glory of God, and of the Holy Republic of Venice, and that its laws might be exactly obeyed. Always lending an attentive ear to the plots of the wicked, whose end is to deceive, to deprive their prince of his just dues, and to conspire secretly, I have over and again unveiled their secret plans, and have not failed to report to Monsieur Grande all I know. It is true that I am always paid, but the money has never given me so much pleasure as the thought that I have been able to serve the blessed St. Mark. I have always despised those who think that there is something dishonorable in the business of a spy. The word sounds ill only to the ill affected, for a spy is a lover of the state, the scourge of the guilty, and the faithful subject of his prince. When I have been put to the test, the feeling of friendship, which might count for something with other men, has never had the slightest influence over me, and still less the sentiment which is called gratitude. I have often, in order to worm out a secret, sworn to be as silent as the grave, and have never failed to reveal it. Indeed, I am able to do so with full confidence, as my director, who is a good Jesuit, has told me that I may lawfully reveal such secrets, not only because my intention was to do so, but because when the safety of the state is at stake, there is no such thing as a binding oath. I must confess that 
in my zeal i have betrayed my own father and that in me the promptings of our weak nature have been quite mortified three weeks ago i observed that there was a kind of cabal between four or five notables of the town of isola where i live i knew them to be disaffected to the government on account of certain contraband articles which had been confiscated the first chaplain a subject of austria by birth was in on the plot they gathered together of evenings in an inn in a room where there was a bed where they drank and talked and afterwards went their ways as i was determined to discover the conspiracy i was brave enough to hide under the bed on a day on which i was sure i would not be seen towards the evening my gentlemen came over and began to talk amongst other things they said that the town of Isola was not within the jurisdiction of St. Mark, but rather in the principality of Trieste, as it could not possibly be considered to form a part of the Venetian territory. The chaplain said to the chief of the plot, a man named Pietro Paolo, that if he and the others were to sign a document to that effect, he himself would go to the imperial ambassador, and that the empress would not only take possession of the island, but would reward them for what they had done. They all professed themselves ready to go on, and the chaplain promised to bring the document the next day, and afterwards to take it to the ambassadors. I determined to frustrate this detestable project, although one of the conspirators was my gossip, a spiritual relationship which gave him a greater claim on me than if he had been my own brother. After they were gone, I came out of my hiding place, and did not think it necessary to expose myself to danger by hiding again as I had found out sufficient for my purpose. I set out the same night in a boat, and reached here the next day before noon. I had the names of the six rebels written down, and I took the paper to my secretary of the tribunal, telling him all I had heard. He ordered me to appear the day following at the palace, and an agent of the government should go back with me to Isola, that I might point the chaplain out to him as he had probably not yet gone to the Austrian ambassadors. That done, said the Lord Secretary, you will no longer meddle in the matter. I executed his orders, and after having shown the chaplain to the agent, I was at leisure for my own affairs. After dinner, my gossip called me in to shave him, for I am a barber by profession. And after I had done so, he gave me a capital glass of refosco with some slices of sausage and we ate together in all good fellowship. My love for him had still possession of my soul, so I took his hand, and shedding some heartfelt tears, I advised him to have no more to do with the canon, and above all not to sign the document he knew of. He protested that he was no particular friend of the chaplain's, and swore that he did not know what document I was talking about. I burst into a laugh, telling him it was only my joke and went forth very sorry at having yielded to a sentiment of affection which made me commit so grievous a fault. The next day I saw neither the man nor the chaplain. A week after, having paid a visit to the palace, I was promptly imprisoned, and here I am with you, my dear sir. I thank St. Francis for having given me the company of a good Christian, who is here for reasons of which I desire to know nothing, for I am not curious. My name is Soradaki and my wife is a Lengrinzi, daughter of a secretary to the Council of Ten, who, in spite of all prejudice to the contrary, determined to marry me. She will be in despair at not knowing what had become of me, but I hope to be here only for a few days, since the only reason of my imprisonment 
is that the secretary wishes to be able to examine me more conveniently. I shuddered to think of the monster who was with me, but feeling that the situation was a risky one, and that I should have to make use of him, I compassionated him, praised his patriotism, and predicted that he would be set at liberty in a few days. A few minutes after he fell asleep, and I took the opportunity of telling the whole story to Father Balby, showing him that we should be obliged to put off our work to a more convenient season. Next day I told Lawrence to buy me a wooden crucifix, a statue of Our Lady, a portrait of St. Francis, and two bottles of holy water. Soradaki asked for his ten sous, and Lawrence, with an air of contempt, gave him twenty. I asked Lawrence to buy me four times the usual amount of garlic, wine, and salt, a diet in which my hateful companion delighted. After the gala was gone, I deftly drew out the letter Balby had written me, and in which he drew a vivid picture of his alarm. He thought all was lost, and over and over again thanked heaven that Lawrence had put Sarduki into my cell. For, said he, if he had come into mine, he would not have found me there, and we should possibly have shared a cell in the wells as a reward for our endeavors. Soradachi's tale had satisfied me that he was only imprisoned to be examined, as it seemed plain that the secretary had arrested him on suspicion of bearing false witness. I thereupon resolved to entrust him with two letters, which would do me neither harm nor good if they were delivered to their addresses, but which would be beneficial to me if the traitor gave them to the secretary as a proof of his loyalty, as I had not the slightest doubt he would do. I spent two hours writing these two letters in pencil. Next day Lawrence brought me the crucifix, the two pictures, and the holy water, and having worked the rascal well up to a point, I said, I reckon upon your friendship and your courage. Here are two letters I want you to deliver when you recover your liberty. My happiness depends on your loyalty, but you must hide the letters. As they were found upon you, we should both of us be undone. We must swear by the crucifix and these holy pictures not to betray me. I am ready, dear master, to swear to anything you like, and I owe you too much to betray you. This speech was followed by much weeping and lamentation. He called himself unhappy wretch of being suspected of treason toward a man for whom he would give his life. I knew my man, but I played out the comedy. Having given him a shirt and a cap, I stood up bareheaded, and then, having sprinkled the cell with holy water, and plentifully bedowed him with the same liquid, I made him swear a dreadful oath, and stuffed with senseless imprecations, for that very reason were the better fitted to strike terror to his soul. After his having sworn the oath to deliver my letters to their addresses, I gave him them, and he himself proposed to sew them up at the back of his waistcoat, between the stuffing and the lining, to which proceedings I assented. I was morally sure that he would deliver my letters to the secretary at the first opportunity, so I took the utmost care with my style of writing, should not discover the trick. They could only gain me the esteem of the court, and possibly its mercy. One of the letters was addressed to Monsieur de Bragadin, and the other to Abbe Grimani, and I told them to not be anxious about me, as I was in good hopes of soon being set free at liberty, that they would find when I came out of my imprisonment had done me more good than harm, as there was no one in Venice who stood in need of reform more than I. I begged Monsieur de Bragadin to be kind enough to send me a pair of fur boots for the winter, 
as my cell was high enough for me to stand upright and to walk up and down. I took care that Soradaci should not suspect the innocent nature of these letters, as he might then have been seized with the temptation to do an honest thing for me, and have delivered them, which was not what I was aiming for. You will see, dear readers, in the following chapter, the power of oaths over the vile soul of my odious companion, and also, if I have not verified the saying, in Vino Veritas, for, in the story he told me, the wretch had shown himself in his true colors. End of chapter 28, part 2